Amen. It, it's such a joy to sing the Psalms. Amen. I'm so thankful for our worship team that finds those for us, practices them, learns them, and then leads us in them so that we can be aided in our meditation on God's Word. We're looking this morning at Psalm 15. So if you want to open your Bibles, we'll be looking at Psalm 15. Uh, If you grab the Bible in front of you, there's usually Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, Maybe somebody with the page number can shout it out since I forgot to look it up. 453. 453. And those are the people who are quick on the draw. Do you see how fast that was? It's impressive. They're excited to hear the word preached this morning. 453 in your pew Bible. This is the word of God. A psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's read that one more time since it's short. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed himself. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who appeared. You are a God who descends. You are a God who spoke and who met with and was present locally at different times throughout salvation history. Lord, we thank you that you have seen fit, Lord, to make us for yourself, that we might dwell with you, that you might be our God, and that, that we might be your people and find our greatest joy in walking in fellowship with you. Lord, forgive us for how we've ruined that with our sin. We thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to be forgiven through sending your son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the price you paid on the cross so that we could be counted righteous and be forgiven of all our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that 
you rose from the grave and you ascended to heaven and you bestowed your spirit upon us, your church, that your church might walk in newness of life and in obedience to your holy word, that we might enjoy you and we might walk in the holiness, Lord, that you call us to walk in. Help us to do that more and more, Lord. And we ask, Father, that through the preaching of this passage, we may be reminded of the holiness that we are to embody. We pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of the holiness, Lord, that you require and also produce in us. We ask, Lord, that this passage would be a corrective to hypocritical faith, that it would be an antidote against spiritual presumption, that it would be a wake-up call, Lord, for those who are spiritually lethargic. We ask that it bring clarification, Lord, for any of those who are confused in what holiness looks like. And we pray that it would be a warning for those who are walking in unrepentant wickedness, Lord. And lastly, we ask that it would be a comfort to your faithful who are in attendance this morning, God. Please do all these things and more. Make us a people prepared in holiness to worship you now and forever, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What is the most amazing place that you ever visited? Who is the most distinguished guest? Or who is the most distinguished host that you ever got to be a guest at? Who is the most amazing person who ever welcomed you into their home? Who, if you could think of a a person alive today, would you be absolutely devastated if they said you were not welcome in their home? For the Israelite, and for David in particularly, there was no more amazing place There was no more amazing place to be than the tabernacle of God. And there is no more distinguished company to have. There is no better host to be hosted by and to be the guest at than the Lord of hosts himself. The the God who made all things and who created all things and sustains all things. That God who has made himself present, that was for David and for the Israelites the best place, the best company. And there would be no greater devastation in their lives than to find out that they were not welcome in the Lord's house or the Lord's tabernacle or the Lord's temple. For them to arrive at the place where God placed his name. For them to to climb up and ascend the mountain and be amongst others who were God-fearing. And where they had people preaching the word of God and offering the sacrifices of God. Where people could come near to the presence of God. Come under the protection of God. Cry out with prayers to God. And have answers of prayer from God. To enter into God's tent or his house was the greatest thing and the closest thing for them to heaven. 
read and hear how much David and the psalmist love to dwell in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Jumping down to verse 8, it says, And we have heard... And so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. We sang this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Jumping down to verse 10, it says, A day for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Friends, the greatest place that you could ever be the most important house that you could ever visit is the Lord's house. It's the place where God dwells and the place where God invites others into his presence to worship and glorify him. To be rejected from that place is the worst imaginable thing possible. To be rejected from that place would be the worst thing that we could ever experience. And the scriptures are clear that even though the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed and the church now is considered a holy temple to God, there is still yet a future temple of God during the millennial period. This is what Isaiah chapter 2 verse says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The passage goes on. Another one in Isaiah 4, it speaks about when Jerusalem has undergone a cleansing and a, a spirit of judgment and burning that the Lord brings about and then purifies them. It says that the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night for all, over all the glory there will be a canopy. So you think back and you think, man, they saw the glory of the Lord. They saw the pillar of the Lord. They saw that pillar of cloud. They saw that pillar of fire. Isaiah's saying, that's going to happen again in the latter days. But then even beyond that, the scriptures also point to the new heaven and the new earth where Jerusalem continues and Mount Zion continues to be the central place of worship for God's people. The end of the Bible in Revelation 21 John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
And jumping down a little bit, he says that the nations will bring their glory and honor into it, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, hear it clearly. Life truly is a journey in pilgrimage to Zion. John Bunyan was absolutely right to take Christian and describe him as the one who's fleeing the city of destruction, making his way to the celestial city. That is the hope for every believer, is to stand and be welcomed and worship God for all eternity. But there's a humbling thing to realize about this. Not all are welcomed. Not all are welcomed. That became clear in that passage in Revelation. But also, David seems to understand this as well because right at the beginning of our psalm, he says, who shall sojourn? Who shall dwell? Who? A question because David knows that it will not be everyone. Only certain people are going to dwell and worship the Lord on Zion. Not all are welcomed. In Revelation, it said, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor one who does what is detestable or false. Jesus says in Luke 6, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Matthew 7, similar passage, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Not everyone is welcome, friends. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says that you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And again in Revelation 21, it says, to the one who conquers, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage I will be, uh, and I will be, I will give him, uh, I had a typo here in my notes, I'm sorry about that. Verses 7 and 8 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Not everyone, friends, will make it and be welcome to the new Jerusalem. That should humble us. That should make us want to cry out with our hearts along with David, who, Lord, who shall dwell? Who shall sojourn? In your tent. You see, if a person's life is characterized by the sins described in these passages, when they die and they have never repented, they have never turned away from their sin, they have never put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ and began to live the newness of life that He calls us to and to begin to walk in that holiness of life, they will not be welcome. There is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 a holiness that is described, that without which no one will see the Lord. 
And that is exactly the same thing that I think David is trying to present to us in our passage this morning. Those who are welcomed to worship God, those who are welcomed to his holy mountain and welcomed into his presence to worship him with pure worship now and forevermore are those who are marked by holiness of life. It's a practical holiness. It's a personal holiness. And I want to take a look at it with you this morning. So what does it look like practically? The main idea here is that worshipers who God welcomes are characterized by what I'm calling a whole life, whole body holiness. So when I'm talking about holiness this morning, I'm saying whole life, whole body holiness. This passage covers some of the most important distinguishing characteristics of the worshipers who are welcomed by God. They have, as we'll work through this, holy feet. They have holy hearts. They have holy tongues. They have holy eyes. And they have holy hands. That's why I'm calling this a a whole life, whole body holiness. A holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let's begin. First, those who are welcomed to the Lord have holy feet. Do you have holy feet? Some of you think I got ugly feet. Others, I have stinky feet. Uh, there's good news, though, for you. You can have ugly and stinky holy feet. Can I get an amen? Uh, amen to that. Look at verse 2. This is one of the descriptions of those who are welcomed by God. It says that he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Walking is one of the most common metaphors in the scripture to describe the way that one is living their life. One who walks blamelessly is one whose overall daily journeys are uh, headed in the right direction, morally and spiritually speaking. Their feet are moving in the right direction, one foot after the other. They are stepping. Maybe they get off track a little bit here and there, but they are, as the main tenor of their life, as the course of their life, they are headed in the right direction. They are walking blamelessly. They are sticking to the path. They are seeking to live in an upright way. They have encountered the true and living God. They have heard his word. They have come to believe in him. And although they're not perfectly obedient in everything, they are characterized. And the way they live their life is characterized by holiness and a blamelessness. They walk in the right direction. And they keep going in that direction. In Psalm 19, verse 13, David says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David knows that he is a sinner. David's prayer is that there'd be no great transgression in his life and there'd be no presumptuous sin that exercises dominion over him. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that he never sins. That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about a blameless life, a life innocent of great transgression. The person who's welcomed by the Lord is one who has holy feet. God gave you feet so that you could walk. God gave you his word so that you know which way to walk. Are you walking in the right way? Are you walking in the right way? Holy feet are walking 
in the right way. Psalm 119 verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Paired with walking blamelessly to help us understand it as well is the next phrase that says, and does what is right. So the person who is walking blamelessly is also a person who is doing what is right. They have real works, uh, good works that they're doing in their life. They do righteous deeds. That's something that characterizes their life. Their life is more characterized by righteous deeds and good works than presumptuous sin and great transgression. That's the person that God welcomes. Anyone else trying to come and approach God while flagrantly living however they want, committing terrible sins, not fearing God, not turning away from sin, has no welcome at all. They're nothing but a hypocrite. They have holy feet. Second distinguishing characteristic of worshipers who are welcomed by God is that they have holy hearts. Look at verse 2. It says that this person speaks truth in his heart. Friends, your feet will never lead you in the right direction so as long as your heart is oriented in the wrong direction. David understands something that Jesus understands It's everywhere in the word of God that that these things have their start and root in the heart. Blamelessness and walking in the right direction and walking in the truth begins with truth in the heart. Hearing the truth, understanding the truth, believing the truth, and then obeying the truth. They have holy hearts. They have believed in God. And God has changed them. And they're bearing fruit in repentance. And they walk in in holiness of heart and speak truth in their heart. David says in Psalm 12, verse 2, lamenting the wickedness of those around him, he says that everyone utters lies to his neighbor and with a flattering lips and a double heart they speak. That's the exact opposite of what he's describing in this passage. The righteous person is one who speaks truth in his heart. The one who is unrighteous and wicked has a double heart. They're double-minded. They have a forked tongue. They have have both good and evil flowing out. And James, it says that should not be. That should not be. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if there is no truth in your heart, there will be no truth on your mouth. If there's no love in your heart, there'll be no love on your mouth. David says that they must speak truth in their their hearts. The one who speaks truth in his heart also hates lying. They hate deceit. They hate every deceptive way. They care more about truth than their own comfort and their own convenience and their own reputation. They grab hold of and they hold on to tight truth in their heart. Their thoughts, they seek to think true thoughts and test all other thoughts by the truth of God's word. Those who are going to be welcomed by God speak truth in their hearts. A third distinguishing characteristic of, the tr- of, of worshipers who are welcomed by God is their tongue. It's their tongue. They have holy tongues. Those with whole life, whole body, holiness have holy tongues. Look at verse 3. It says, 
that this, this, this person is one who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. No one can be considered to have a holy life if they have an unholy tongue. James says in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's heavy. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. Do you have a holy tongue? Are the things coming off your tongue holy and good? There's three particular sins of the tongue mentioned in our text, slander, reproach, and mentioning oaths. I'll clump the first two together and talk about these briefly. And we'll just put it this way. A holy tongue speaks the truth in love and builds up and does not tear down. That's what a holy tongue does. Uh, In this passage, it says that who does not slander with his tongue? And this word slander refers to one, uh, one commentator puts it, someone walking around seeking tidbits of gossip to pass on to someone else. And he says such people behave as spies or conspirators trafficking in information that tears down someone else. I'll just remind you while we're thinking about slander that the the word devil comes from diabolos is the Greek word, which what does that Greek word mean? Slanderer. So when we're slandering people, when we're gossiping people, when we're seeking maliciously to ruin people's uh, uh, reputation, when we're attacking people, when we're insulting people, we are using our tongues for evil and our tongues are not holy. We need to repent of that. We need to have holy tongues that build up and speak the truth in love, that are gentle and bless those who curse us. Maybe far from us to be like Satan and be a slanderer. And this is important. It's not just the, a sin to, to, to gossip and to slander, but it's also a sin to listen to it. I like what Adam Clark says, helping us understand the wickedness of slander. I, I didn't know what this first word is, so you guys might laugh at me for that. But he says, he is a knave. And how many of you guys know what a knave is? All right, I had to look that one up. Maybe most of you are with me. That's an unprincipled, untrustworthy, dishonest person. Okay, sometimes when you read the old guys, you get some old words. But he is a knave. Maybe we should bring that word back. Uh, he's a knave who would rob you of your good name. He is a coward that would speak of you in your absence what he dared not to do in your presence. And only an ill-conditioned, this is great, only an ill-conditioned dog would fly at and bite your back when your face was turned. All these ideas are included in the term, and they all meet in the, in the detractor, and, uh, and they all meet in the detractor. His tongue is the tongue of a knave, a coward, and a dog. Do you listen? Do you yourself speak things like this? Remember that it's a sin to do both of those. Spurgeon makes a, a comparison between robbery and slander. He says that a person who picks up stolen goods and harbors them is as bad as the thief. Do you hear that? 
So if you know something is stolen, you know something does not belong to you, it belongs to someone else, and you go and you pick it up, hey, even though I didn't take it, but now you have it and you're harboring it. You're just as bad as the thief. He says, likewise, the person who lends their ear to hearing slander is just as bad as the slanderer. Quoting the English Puritan, it says that if, they, if there were not gratified hearers of ill reports, there would be an end of the trade of spreading them. He also says the tail bearer carrieth the devil in his tongue and the tail bearer uh, carries the devil in his ear. Whether you're saying it, whether you're hearing it, it is sin that needs to be repented of. A holy tongue speaks the truth in love and builds up and does not tear down. But also we see that a holy tongue keeps their word. A holy tongue keeps their word. And this we see down in verse 4 when it says uh, that this person swears to his own hurt and does not change. They keep their word. Uh, An example of swearing to your own harm and not changing is given to us in, in Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Ruth says to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I will be faithful to follow you, and to follow the Lord, and to be his people to death. And if I ever try to turn away from that, may the Lord just take my life. You keep your word. If you make an oath, you keep your oath. I'll remind you that both Deuteronomy and Jesus make it very clear. You don't need to (laughs) make an oath. And Jesus says, just let your yes be yes. But we're seeing the same point. The holy tongue is a tongue of integrity. It's a tongue that keeps its, keeps its word. And just imagine for a moment if God was not like this, if God did not have a holy tongue and God did not keep his promises, where would we be? God promises to save and to rescue and to redeem and to pay for all of our sins because of Christ's work on the cross. Where would we be if we showed up on judgment day pleading the mercy of the Lord through the finished work of Christ and he said, I changed my mind. I'm not going to keep my word. Depart from me, you, you workers of lawlessness. We would be completely undone. We'd be completely cut off. But praise God, he's a holy God. Praise God that he is a God who keeps his word. He is a God who keeps his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. How is your tongue? Are you passing on slanders and gossips? Are you keeping your word? What's the last thing that you promised someone to do? Have you kept it? Do other people have lots of things that they can think of that you've promised them that you have not done? Repent. Humble yourself before the Lord. 
and do what you say you're going to do. That's what people with a holy tongue do. A holy tongue speaks the truth in love and builds up and does not tear down and keeps their word. But we, we move on to our, our, our fourth characteristic of worshipers who are welcomed by God. And that is they have holy eyes. And maybe immediately as I mention holy eyes, your mind goes to the things that you should not be looking at. Adultery in the heart, lust, coveting. And praise God if the Spirit has just convicted you of that. Repent and humble yourself before him. But that's not what the passage is covering right here. When it speaks of holy eyes, it has more to do with the way that you look at people and how you value them and how you esteem them and how, how you think about honoring them, how you think about their character and how you think about uh, what sort of friendship and, uh, you should have with this person. If we read the verse, it says that this person who's welcomed by the Lord, it says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord. Maybe you're around somebody who is doing terrible things that you know that they should not be doing, that they know that they should not be doing, but you're sitting there and you let them do it in front of you without saying anything. And you've never corrected them and you've never spoken up. Friend, you are a man pleaser. Repent of that sin despise the person who, who's, who's committing these things in front of you. Does it, it doesn't mean that you attack them or destroy them, but what you do do is make a clear statement to them that it's wrong and you call them to repentance. And you don't just go with them and you don't have a high view of them. It doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter how much power they have. It doesn't matter what they can do, if they can promote you or not, if they can hurt you or kill you or not. If they're doing something wicked and they're living in rebellion against the Lord, you don't just sit by and pat their back and say, you're doing just great, buddy. I love you. I love hanging out with you. We should be grieved by the sin that's going on around us. I think a good example of this is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. It says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And then it gives this parenthetical statement. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. One of the reasons I love Pastor Kevin is because his soul is tormented by the unrighteous and wicked, lawless deeds that he sees and hears. And as a young man in Christ, and now I, I like to tell my wife, we're middle-aged now, as a middle-aged man in Christ, in a depraved and corrupt culture, we grow soft. We, we, we grow acceptable of these things and we don't, we're not grieved by them as we ought. And then sometimes I see Kevin grieved by something and I'm like, dude, what? I should be grieved like that. This is what the word calls us to. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but also on the other side, but who honors those who fear the Lord. See, just like God in Psalm 5, David says, God is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. 
you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We cannot act and sit passively. We can't act like God, that, that they are proved by God and they, they have our approval. God will judge their wickedness. And we must warn them of that if we love them. Who are you running with? Who are you keeping company with? Maybe some of you have too close a fellowship with vile people and you're not saying anything. But if you do say something, you might lose that relationship. Fear God. Do the right thing. Call them to repentance. If they're really your friend, then they'll thank you for calling them to repentance. If they're not a fool, they'll heed your correction and your rebuke, and you have gained your friend. We have to have holy eyes. And holy eyes not only uh, despises uh, the one who's a vile person, it says here that they also honor the one who fears the Lord. When you look at Christians and you look at, at people, even baby Christians, do you hold them up with honor? Do you respect them? Do you love them? Do you, do you look at the people who are living righteous lives? Maybe they don't have it all together. Maybe they don't, they don't do everything perfectly. Maybe they don't do everything how you think they should do it, but they love God and God is doing a work in them and they are walking in holiness and righteousness, but they're doing it maybe a little bit differently from you and maybe at the church just, just down the street. And, and I think that sometimes we are so tempted to dishonor those people. Instead of loving them and upholding them and valuing them and loving all the believers in the South Bay, I don't care what church they go to, if they truly fear God and know the Lord, I want to honor them. I want to build them up. I want them to be my friends. I want them to be the people that I spend time with. I love what David says in Psalm 16, verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Would to God that we viewed each other that way, church. That, that when we looked at our, our fellow believers, we didn't think about the little, you know, just the, the, the logs or planks that we see, but we love them and we honor them. We will not talk bad about them or pull, tear them down. If we have something to say, we'll go to them and honor them by rebuking them one-on-one. -on -one. But we'll seek their fellowship and their companionship and walk in Christ with them. It says that the one who is welcomed by God honors those who fear the Lord. David loved the saints. David loved the God-fearing ones. He says, they are the ones in whom is all my delight. The last one that we will consider here as we think about whole body, whole life holiness that characterizes those who are welcomed by the Lord, it's your hands. They have holy hands. And, and obviously when you think about your hands, you think about you do so many things with your hands. And if there's anything coming to your mind that you need to repent of, that you have done with your hands. Repent and turn to the Lord. 
If you have hurt a person, if you have attacked a person, if you've thrown stuff at a person, if you sought to physically harm a person, repent of all of that. That has no place for those who are welcome. You don't, you don't lift up dirty hands in praise to a holy God. That's why we're pleading in that psalm, Lord, give us clean hands. But the holy hands that are talked about here is probably not what you're expecting. The holy hands in this passage are hands that are generous and hands that are just. Let's first think about how they're generous. In verse 5, it says that the one who is welcomed by the Lord does not put out his money at interest. This is following in li- follows in line with Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 38, which reads, if, you're poor, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. Let me say that again. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend to him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Likewise, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says that if one of your brothers should become poor, and any of you within your towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And then he says that there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Holy hands, friends, are generous hands. Holy hands are generous hands. In Proverbs 31, verse 20, the, the, the excellent woman, this noble woman, this godly woman, it says in verse 20 that she opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. If holiness of hands is judged by your generosity to the poor, do you have holy hands? Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 34 and 36, If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Brothers, sisters, friends, holy hands are generous hands. But they're also just hands. And let's consider that. Look at the rest of the second part of verse 5. It says that this one who is welcomed by the Lord does not take a bribe against the innocent. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. So holy hands are not just generous, but they're also just. And Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, says that you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. 
You don't receive a bribe if you are a witness. You don't receive a bribe if you are a judge. If you are a judge or a witness and you receive anything, whether it's money, whether it's some gift, whether it's some kickback, however you want to call it, you're receiving anything in order to change the course of justice and obstruct justice, you are in a great sin. And you cannot be involved in that and then just come and worship God and act like there's nothing going on. And that God will just love my praise. God does not want hands of praise lifted up to him that are not generous and not just hands. Be careful what you take in your hands. Isaiah calls out Israel because they became a nation characterized by that sin. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. Your princes are rebels and and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Likewise, Ezekiel also calls them out. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But you have forgotten me, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, verse 7 to 18 says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Aren't you glad that God is a God of generous hands and just hands? There's no wicked person on the day of judgment who's going to be able to pay off God and and find favor in his sight. One, because they're going to stand before him naked with nothing. Two, because God is morally perfect and he would not be tempted by that. And then three, because if someone even tried to do that, he'd probably just, just slay them right there. So don't try to do that. Love what God loves. Hate what God hates. God hates impartiality. He hates bribes. He loves justice. He loves generosity. Holy hands love justice and generosity. Isaac Watts combining the, the, these last couple verses together, speaking on the tongue and also the hands, he, he puts it this way. He says, firm to his word, speaking of the, the righteous man, firm to his word he ever stood and always makes his promise good. No dares to change the thing he swears, whatever pain or loss he bears. He never deals in bribing gold and mourns that justice should be sold. While others gripe and grind the poor, sweet charity attends his door. May the Lord rid us of all greed and all materialism and all temptation to obstruct justice. May he help us to be generous and just with our hands. In summary, holy feet, holy hearts, holy tongues, holy eyes, and holy hands. This is the whole body, whole life holiness that is characteristic of those who will worship the Lord on Mount Zion. I say characteristic because they will not do this perfectly. And because they will not do it perfectly, the fact remains that we do need one who has done all of these things perfectly. 
And that is our Lord Jesus Christ, who never returned evil for evil, who was generous, who was just, who was a man who perfectly regarded the good and the evil, a man who walked the right direction his whole life, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and that he came to seek and save the lost, those who have fallen short of the the law that God requires so that he would pay for their sins so that they would be accepted by him and stand on the day of judgment in Christ's righteousness and not their own. But yet, they would also have righteousness because the one who redeemed them by his blood would also renew them by his spirit so that their lives would be marked by characteristic holiness and righteousness. I love Don Williams' summary. He says, David's concern here is with the totality of life determined by the character of God. And he says, this includes right speech with our neighbor and integrity in legal and financial matters. Oaths are to stand. Money is to honor God. The innocent are to be protected. And he says, we see these standards fulfilled in Christ and then fulfilled in us who abide in Christ and walk not, as Romans 8 says, according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He goes on and says that Jesus is the one in whom there is no sin. He is the one who manifests, hear this, the righteousness of God first for us, and second, in us. There's a wonderful promise given to us at the end of this passage, and that's verse five. It says that he who does these things shall never be moved. The one who does these things, not just the one who hears them, not just the one who knows them, but the one who does them shall never be moved because their works show a true and abiding faith in God. And by faith in God and his son, they have come, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, they have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. They have come, what I'll say later, to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All by faith. And also, we see this promised kingdom, it says in verse 27 of Hebrews. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaking. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Hear this, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for, thank you for the glorious promises that we have. We thank you for showing us the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for paying for all of our sins. We thank you for giving us your spirit that we may walk in holiness and newness of life. Lord, may our lives be characterized by that holiness more and more 
until we spend the rest of eternity with you on that glorious mountain in your presence, in your home, which you also invite us, Lord, and welcome us into forever to enjoy your presence and to sing your praises for all eternity. We long for that day, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, and make us a holy people until we see you face to face. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.